from downtown Milwaukee, welcome to Money Talk with Bob Landis. Each week, professional advisors from Landis and Company Investments discuss the latest financial developments, offering timely insight and long-term perspective. This is Money Talk for January 20th, 2023. Checking the calendar, the Bucks are home Saturday night with Cleveland and Wednesday with Denver. Today is National Cheese Lovers Day. That should be a holiday here in Wisconsin. And it's also a National Coffee Break Day. Heck, I thought that was every day. <laughs> Eating insects is a real thing, and it's becoming more popular every day. Apparently in South America, the bug at the top of the menu is the big butt ant. No, not your mom's sister, just a real insect. A Bosnian couple divorced after discovering both had an online affair with each other using fake names. They divorced, after which they accused the other of cheating. A couple of arsonists set themselves on fire while trying to burn down a California immigration center. And they say immigrants are the problem. A fire at a Wisconsin dairy plant caused so much butter to melt that a molten river of butter flowed from the factory into the Portage Canal. Too bad there aren't any lobsters in that canal. <laughs> Florida School Board canceled a high school production of Indecent. That's a play about censorship on Broadway. Today's lesson, boys and girls, is irony. And our goofy headline of the week comes from Florida. Local high school dropouts cut in half. The headline writer must have been sick the day they studied punctuation. <laughs> On the podcast today, we have Adam Bailey, Paige Radke, Joel Dreesing, and wrapping up the week, here's Kyle Tedding. Well, thanks, Max. And a bit of a mixed week overall. The NASDAQ able to scratch out a positive number, up six-tenths of a percent, up 61 points this week. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 2.7%, though, closing at the bell at 33,374. That's down 928 points for the week, despite a 330-point rally on Friday. And the S&P, a bit broader measure, down seven-tenths of a percent this week, closing down 27 points to end at 39.72. For the year, all three still meaningfully positive, uh, although the Dow uh, being hit a bit by some weak earnings in a couple of areas, not up as much as the NASDAQ and the S&P. The NASDAQ up 64 the S&P up 3.5, the Dow Jones Industrial Average up 7 tenths of a percent. A quick look at the week for stocks, for bonds, uh, another week in which the benchmark 10-year Treasury yield has moved lower, closing at 3.48 at the bell. However, shorter-term bonds, uh, in particular, the very short-term bonds in anticipation of the Fed's likely move at the end of the month into the 1st of February, continue to move just a little bit higher. Maybe a, a quick look at stocks and bonds. Obviously, the, the big question, Adam, that has been floated out there this week is, are we going to come to some kind of agreement on this debt ceiling limit? And of course, I would have thought the market response would have been far more substantial. Uh, I would have thought that the uncertainty that certainly has been thrown out there um, in a year you know, twelve-month period in which uncertainty has not been in any shortage uh, would have caused far greater consternation for investors than what we've seen. And yet, um, you know, I think it, a pretty tame week overall is mm -hmm. investors more focused on earnings, more focused on the Fed, 
um, you know, despite the fact that potentially this debt ceiling conversation could hang out there for a while. Yeah, you know, to answer your question, are we going to come to a consensus on the debt ceiling? Uh, at some point, yes, we will. That day isn't today, sadly. Uh, but just as a reminder, you know, the debt ceiling, um, you know, that we're taking extraordinary measures just to try to keep us solvent uh, through the early summer. And, you know, I got several questions this week from clients on the, the debt ceiling. And actually, the questions I got weren't necessarily the debt ce- ceiling, but the a potential for a government shutdown along with it because those things tend to go hand in hand and that, that was the questions I got from clients and you know some of the uh, the wisdom that I shared is if we ever do get there you know a government shutdown just remember who's open for business and making money right corporate america you, you don't own shares of the government but you own shares of businesses and even if we get to that point businesses still open and making money and you, you go back to you know, past 50 years, my goodness, we've been to, we've had 79 debt ceiling issues that we've come face to face with. We've had 22 government shutdowns in the last 50 years. And that's on average one every other year. So I mean, we kind of been here. So maybe the market is just taking this one in stride and just saying, all right, well, this too shall pass. And if you take a look at market performance, uh, the S&P 500 at times when the government has been shut down in the last 50 years, the worst it ever got was 4% decline back in the, the shutdown of 79. You know, by the way, the last time we had that happen, markets surged 10%. And, you know, on average, you know, if we ever get there to a government shutdown, but the, the average S&P 500 return during that time period, a positive 0.1%. So maybe that's why the market this week is kind of taking it in stride. We've been here before. We've seen this. It's not new news. And, you know, maybe to sum it up in a phrase, this too shall pass. Well, and of course, it's not that it doesn't matter. It does matter. Um, I think the reality, though, is that if of the last 79 times we've been here, we eventually came to resolution, it stands to reason that the 80th time we'll get to the same place. I think reasonably there are people concerned about the current state of the political landscape and why this time might be different. Those are reasonable thoughts. But remember, if we allow this to continue to be the problem, everybody's going to be looking for someone to pin this on, and nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be the one that caused the government to shut down and the economic catastrophe that follows. And so um, I think there is some reason to think that while this will hang out there for a while longer, we get to a resolution here. Maybe it's not January, maybe it's not February, but those extraordinary measures you were talking about, Adam, get us probably to early to mid-June. Um, and that buys a lot of time for us to figure out what this looks like. Paige, I know you've listened and read a bunch on this. You have some some thoughts of your own, certainly. What are you hearing? What are you talking about with people as you look at kind of this this pending debt ceiling issue? Yeah. So, I mean, like you like you alluded to, the fact that there's been so much dysfunction and arguably more polarization than we've seen in the past in Washington is really what's driving people's concerns more so than the debt ceiling itself. Because to Adam's point, this isn't our first time here. This too shall pass. Um, but, you know, one point I've been making, which is, you know, a little bit ironic, is that if we do see us not being able to increase the debt ceiling, um, what what is the outcome, right? It would likely be panic selling in the treasury market and in money markets. The last times that has happened, what what comes next is the government steps in 
and has to take some measures to stabilize those markets, which leads to additional government spending. Um, so I just think it's a, it's a reminder to everyone that you really have to take what these politicians are saying and recognize that some of it might just be posturing. Um, some of it is trying to get a message across to their base. But ultimately, the, the end result of needing to or of not raising the debt ceiling would actually be additional government spending, which is the exact opposite impact that the majority um, in Congress wants right now. And so really, you know, just take a step back and look at the outcome and the, you know, the cause and effect here and recognize that they're not going to get their desired effect by taking these measures. And so I, I still feel very confident that they're going to reach a resolution. But in the short term, what until they do, there's going to be more uncertainty. I say this time and time again, uncertainty breeds volatility. Um, and so really, it just it's short term noise that we're going to have to get through. And it's just a good reminder of, you know, keeping invested, recognizing what the volatility is and where it's coming from, and that it is a short term situation rather than something that really is going to impact, to Adam's point, corporations and corporate America long term. Well, you often talk about how the markets are looking forward, that they a lot of times price things in to, you know, what what the stock prices are. Is there any sense that there's been that sort of a calculation for this issue? It's as Paige points out, it's uncertainty. It's kind of I mean, you know, if we're talking between now in June, that's kind of a long time. Is this something that anybody's anticipated to just sort of say, you know, the the dysfunctional aspects of, uh, you know, the partisanship could come to something like this? To an extent, Joel, this this one's unique in that the, the range of outcomes is fairly large. Um, we don't even know for sure what day it's going to be that we run out of money right now. Um, and so it depends in part on what tax receipts look like. It depends in part on all kinds of factors. And so the challenge we're really facing is not so much, can we price this in? How do we price this in? It's, we don't even know yet exactly what we're pricing in. Um, and so the key, at least from what I, I'm talking to clients about, what I'm looking to try to do is find those things, which Adam and Paige both, I think, very rightfully point out, find those things that aren't tied to government spending strictly. Um, find those things which can survive even a prolonged period of time in which the government remains more dysfunctional than we normally see um, because, yeah, okay, corporate America issues a bond, um, but many of those bonds aren't waiting on receipts. They've got cash on the balance sheet ready to pay it off when it comes due. And so, Right now, do I want a treasury that's paying three and a half or four and a half, depending on how far out you're looking, or do I want a corporate bond that is almost as high quality as that treasury, but maybe paying five or five and a quarter um, and doesn't have that risk that the cash isn't going to be there to pay it back? Well, okay, I'd rather, at least near term, have that corporate bond knowing that this risk is hanging out there. Would I rather have the meaningful upside? of stocks long-term or some uncertainty around what's going to happen in the treasury market over the next three months, five months, 10 months, however long this lasts. Um, and the reality is, yeah, you're going to get a lot more volatility from stocks, but there's also a lot more potential upside. And so I think the key here is don't overestimate 
the role that safety should play in your portfolio because we find at times that even some of the th- stuff we thought was supposed to be really, really safe. And last year's a great example. Even some of the stuff that we thought was supposed to be really, really safe can have a bad day or two. And so it's the the reason why we talk about balance. It's the reason why we diversify even the safe stuff. Because even if I'm fairly certain I can count on it, I want to know that there's two other things there that I can count on as well. And for now, that probably means I'm not afraid to hold a little more cash. A reminder that you're getting paid meaningfully, even at banks now, uh, some announcements from JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, that they were starting to see some cash outflows from depositors. Um, and they're recognizing that it's because credit unions and money markets are paying far more than the, than what they're paying their savings account holders. And so I think the the reality of the market we're in now is that you're not going to have to take as much risk. And so I'm less concerned for that reason as well is uh, I'll take the FDIC insurance on a bank deposit for the stuff I'm going to need for the next six months because I can be confident that it's going to be there that even if the government can't do their spending, I can do mine. So yeah, I think it's the right way to be thinking about this. You know, the other thing that keeps getting thrown out there is this idea that, um, especially what we've seen in tech recently with layoffs, is a precursor to a much larger labor market issue. Um, and Paige, I know anecdotally you've talked to friends you have in in some of those industries, um, but. You know, I think the the reality is this may be more a factor of what's happening in tech than it is what's happening more broadly in the economy. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, anecdotally, I've had, you know, at least half a dozen friends that work in tech sales lose their jobs since December. Every single one of them has been able to find a job. Um, in most cases, they have the new job. It has a higher salary and better benefits. So they weren't even looking, um, lost their job, and now actually ended up on top uh, because there's been a shortage of workers in the tech space outside of those big tech names. Um, you know, and then even just beyond that, you know, to your point about it being more of a tech issue, um, I was on a call with one of the fund managers that we used yesterday, and you know, the word that they used as the key theme recently was over extrapolation. Um, So with tech specifically, they look back at, you know, the boom that came out of COVID because people needed more more software, they needed more hardware, um, and they over extrapolated that out past the pandemic. So they didn't look at it as event driven. They thought that that would be continued consistent growth going forward, which of course was incorrect. Um, It very much was a short term boom. Um, And so they overhired at that time as they overestimated the growth. And now they're just getting back down to a more reasonable employment level before they get to the point where it's going to start impacting their profit margins. Um, And so one of the points that can be made is that Really, this is an example of good corporate management. Um, They had an idea in their head. That idea didn't work out. And rather than just continuing to run with it and having that hurt their bottom line, they're making the adjustments today when the job market is still strong, when their workers can still go out and find new jobs. So that down the road, if we do see an economic slowdown, they're going to be better off. Mm -hmm. The ex-employees are going to be better off. And it may not be, you know, this big spread throughout the economic system as some people or at least the headlines would lead you to believe. And Cal, just to point out also, I mean, uh, we, we're hearing about all these layoffs and and they, they it sounds monstrous, but two things to remember. One is that announced layoffs aren't the same as layoffs. 
a lot of times, and I've I've kind of covered the labor market for a long time. A lot of times, companies will say we're going to lay off X percent or X number of workers, and and sometimes, you know, to Paige's point, it's it's um, they're speaking to their shareholders to say, you know, we see that that things are tough and we're going to cut costs, and this is the way we're going to do it. Um, the other thing is that um, so, so there's a, there's a site called layoffs.fyi that keeps track of of layoffs in in the tech industry. They estimate that 155,000 tech employees lost their jobs in 2022. So far this year, it's like 38,000. So that's a that's that's a lot. Um, but um, that 155,000 compares to 155 million in the the labor force. Um, so it's it's really kind of a very small slice of of the overall employment picture. And as Paige points out, eight out of ten of them are getting rehired right away. And, and you know, to speak to the the overall employment picture and market, you know, the 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 technology sector had aggressively overhired to Paige's point, you know, through 2020, and they're overstaffed. Uh, that's that's not a surprise. But you take a look at the other areas of the 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 market. And they're understaffed. They're hurting for employees. So, I mean, you can go from one job to the next. And we've seen that, at least, you know, Paige, we have some anecdotal evidence here. But that really is starting to play out in the rest of the job force. The one great example of that that I heard on a, a podcast from New York Times was talking about how significant demand is for software engineers, software developers, um, managers for large software projects. Um, and how it's been impossible to find those workers at a reasonable cost because some of those big Silicon Valley tech firms were snapping them up, giving them huge uh, salaries to do the same work in an area that they find more attractive than maybe going down to uh, Dallas, Texas to work for uh, maybe an airline down there that might need some help with reservation systems. <laughs> um, you know, that's one of the reasons why you know you look at some of these layoffs and go, okay. Yeah, but Joel, as you point out, eight out, of eight out of ten have a job in three in three months. In the draw, in the grand scheme of things, it's a drop in the bucket. And I think most importantly, if you look at capital expenditures for these businesses, if you look at the actual cash outlays, yeah, maybe the line item on their balance sheet or on their uh, their cash flow statement for wages has gone down a little bit, but they're spending left and left and right on technology. Uh, you know, Microsoft talking about laying out $10 billion uh, to invest in ChatGPT, this uh, essentially ultimate competitor to search engines like Google, but also a, a piece of automation, a piece of artificial intelligence that is pretty revolutionary in a lot of ways. Uh, that tells me they're not afraid to put money on where they see growth potential. They're not afraid to put money on kind of investing in the future. But the future maybe isn't 2,500 salespeople and 1,000 managers for those salespeople because those days are over and we're still dealing with that across the economy. We're still dealing with the after effects of a, an economy that shut down overnight, that reopened in phases, uh, and which the pendulum is still swinging back towards the middle on where are we supposed to be. And so I think this is one more example of you know, an economy that's trying to digest uh, over excess in one area and, you know, maybe a little bit less than what we were expecting in others. So, again, I think 
not necessarily a major concern for where we're headed, but certainly one other thing we're keeping an eye on, you know, Joel, we get regular employment reports uh, in the economic data we look at. Um, virtually weekly, we're looking at what that uh, unemployment claims number looks like and not a drastic shift there. No, it's um, it's pretty steady. Actually, it, and that's been trending in, in a good way as, as far as uh, unemployment insurance claims. Um, the, we look at a moving average of that, so it sort of smooths out some of the volatility, but that's been down for six weeks in a row. Um, we haven't had that string for a couple of years, and it, we're, we're at the lowest mark for that uh, that we've been since May. So um, that's that's one trend that we're looking at that is among others that, you know, we've had 23 months in a row of adding jobs to the economy. The The number is getting smaller, but that's that's still quite a streak. We're you know, the, what the unemployment rates, 3.7% near the lowest it's been in 50 years. And and yet, despite the labor market, which seems to continue to remain on pretty solid ground, signs in other areas of the economy that the slowing that we all knew was here is here. Yeah, just about everything else that we look at shows that slowing. You know, we we saw retail sales down for the third time in four months. We saw industrial production down for the second month in a row. Uh, housing starts down four months in a row. Building permits down seven of the last nine months. Um, we got numbers today from the uh, National Association of Realtors that existing home sales dropped in December for the 11th month in a row. Uh, they're they're down 18% from the year before. At the same time, um, and, and I always sort of uh, discount the optimism of the Realtors Association a little bit because, you know, it's always a good time to buy a house. Um, but they point out that even though sales have been down, um, inventories have come up a little because of that. Um, mortgage rates, at least so far, seem like they peaked in November when they were above 7% for a, a traditional uh, you know, 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Um, and the price gains are narrowing. We've seen increased prices for houses, for the median house, um, every year, every year to year, every month for 130 months. Um, in December, it was only 2.3%. Um, so that's that's really low. And, and so uh, the realtors are saying, you know, uh, sales could be start, starting to pick up again. At a time of year in which sales, sales tend to start picking up again anyways. And so I think it all sets up nicely for, okay, maybe we're getting into an environment in which there is the possibility for that Goldilocks economy, the not too hot, not too cold. We ran too hot with high inflation. The concern has obviously been, is the Fed going to cause recession? The debt ceiling conversation not helping that dialogue at all in the near term. Um, but you know, don't discount the fact that um, this Fed has been far more transparent. Uh, this Fed has been far more clear on kind of what the objective is, um, and that leaves open the possibility that while I think a recession is a possibility, um, you know, it isn't the only outcome we see from here. And so, you know, from a, you know, where are we headed perspective, I think the economic data is clear. I think it's it's important that we continue to understand that the impact of lowering inflation 
is that we should expect lower growth in other areas as well. Well, as always, we enjoy doing the program for you, and we will talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to Money Talk with Bob Landis. If you have a financial question you want answered on next week's show, email it to moneytalk at landis.com. To keep informed throughout the week, visit our Money Talk page at landis.com. <laughs>